Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome back to the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength conditioning and strength conditioning to modern medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum. This is part three of the Resistance Training for Kids series written by Dr. Derek Miles. Derek Miles is a physical therapist working at Stanford Children's Hospital. Parts one and part two are both linked in the description below, as well as the text version of part three. We'll start with the narration. Part three, musculoskeletal adaptation to resistance training. Part three will focus on the specific effects of resistance training on youth athletes. As mentioned in the previous parts of this series, resistance training is effective for increasing performance and reducing the risk of injury in athletes. Here, we will explore the mechanisms by which it may elicit these effects. There is a paucity of research directly related to the tissue change in adolescence due to the invasive nature of methods such as muscle biopsy or exposure to ionizing radiation via measurement of bone mineral density. Many studies, therefore, use performance and functional outcomes as proxies for physiological adaptations. So while we cannot directly infer tissue-level adaptation from these results, it does add useful information with respect to program design. We will review the data that do exist for youth athletes and point out when our understanding is extrapolated from data in the adult population. For the global effects on resistance training, Teixeira et al. reviewed the effects of skeletal muscle loading on skeletal muscle repair. While there were not specific dosage parameters given for what constitutes quote-unquote loading, we can begin to distinguish the effects of loading versus inactivity in more general terms. The above figure from Clark and Skiba demonstrates the response to resistance training. Different forms of stimuli elicit different tissue adaptations. While increasing VO2 max may be a positive training effect for swimming, decreased bone mineral density could be seen as a negative training effect from swimming. While performance is usually the primary concern in athletic contexts, when looking at general development, the focus should be on maximizing positive training effects. A primary consideration regarding musculoskeletal adaptation to resistance training is that muscle, bone, and tendon adapt at different rates to different stimuli throughout the youth developmental cycle. Common conditions seen in the youth population such as Severs apophysitis, Osgood-Schlatter's, Sindig-Larsen-Johansson, and avulsion fractures result from mismatches related to the loads placed upon an athlete. In particular, there seems to be a mismatch between rates of muscle and tendon adaptation, particularly amongst athletes participating in sports with a high volume of jumping. According to Coffey and Howley, untrained individuals have a greater capacity to activate the molecular machinery in response to contractile activity, because any overload stimulus induces large perturbations to cellular homeostasis, regardless of the mode of exercise. However, being overly specialized can elicit maladaptation to the developing musculoskeletal system. We will now look at tissue-specific adaptations to loading amongst youth athletes. Bone Health According to Bonnet et al., the majority of bone mineral density accumulation for the lifespan occurs during the pediatric years, with consolidation occurring from 18 to 35 years old. This is followed by an involution phase, in which bone mineral density decreases over the remainder of the lifespan, although this can be mitigated with load-bearing exercise. Bone mineral density is typically measured using a dual X-ray absorptometry, or DEXA scan, and is reported as a Z-score, which is a statistical comparison to an age-matched normal control. The score represents the number of standard deviations a person's bone density differs from their age, sex, and ethnicity matched peers, 
For example, a z-score of negative 1.0 represents a one standard deviation decrease in bone mineral density below that of their peers. The type of exercise to which youth and adolescents are exposed to influences the adaptations in bone mineral density. Nichols et al. performed a cross-sectional study of 161 female athletes categorized as either repetitive or multidirectional athletes. Repetitive athletes engaged in sports like swimming and running, whereas multidirectional athletes competed in sports that are deemed everything else. Among this cohort of females, age 15.3 plus or minus 1.3 years, those who participated in repetitive sports were three times more likely to have a z-score between negative 2.0 and negative 1.0, which falls within the range of clinical osteopenia. This suggests that even beyond early sports specialization, strictly participating in these repetitive loading sports can lead to skeletal maladaptation in adolescent females. This effect is also seen in males. Duplanty et al. compared resistance-trained male runners to non-resistance-trained and untrained peers, found that resistance-trained runners had a greater bone mineral density than non-resistance-trained runners and their untrained peers. This difference did not seem to be modulated by biomarkers that contribute to bone formation or resorption, indicating that differences in bone mineral density are associated with habitual load-bearing exercise using external resistance. Speckler et al. conducted a systematic review on the role of exercise in pediatric bone and found that, compared to the control groups not exposed to an exercise intervention, participation in exercise led to a 0.6% to 1.7% increase in annual bone accrual. These results were magnified in the cohort who were prepubertal, making the case that youth should exercise early and often to make gains in bone mineral density. These results have also been shown in adolescent females, where a 15-month resistance training program not only increased strength by 40%, but also increased bone mineral density at the femoral neck. Sport-specific adaptation occurs in the upper extremities as well. In a 12-month longitudinal study by Duker et al., pre-, peri-, and post-monarchal female tennis players underwent DEXA scanning of their dominant and non-dominant arms. They found the increases in bone mineral content of 22.4% in dominant arms and 19.4% in non-dominant arms among the pre- and perimenarchal group. In comparison, the slightly older postmenarchal group only showed increases of 7.1% in the dominant arms and 4.9% in the non-dominant arms. These results suggest that there are tissue-specific adaptations to loading patterns and provides further confirmation that a large portion of bone accrual occurs in the earlier stages of adolescence. Neuromuscular Adaptation it is evident that muscle incurs specific adaptations to mechanical loading, but the parameters of dosing, ergo the contraction mode and velocity, stimulus intensity, frequency, volume, etc., all heavily influence the specific adaptations generated in the trained population. There is likely no specific set or rep scheme that is optimal for initial adaptation among untrained individuals, as the novelty of the stimulus is typically sufficient to elicit changes in the muscle in this population. However, there does appear to be a discrepancy between the development of strength versus muscle cross-sectional area in the earlier phases of training, particularly among youth athletes. Due to the constraints of measurement in youth, outcomes such as limb circumference and EMG activation tend to be used as proxies for neural and morphological changes, even though they are not ideal measures. With this concession in mind, children do seem to show greater changes in voluntary activation post-training than adults, 10 to 17% greater voluntary activation post-training in children and 1.3 to 4.5% voluntary activation increase post-training in adults. Other measurements of neurological adaptations include rate of force development, which describes the rate of increase in muscle force after contraction onset, and electromechanical delay, which describes the time lag between muscle activation and force production. Here, compared to adults, children produce lower rates of force development and longer electromechanical delays. Some authors speculate that this could contribute to the lower motor control typically seen in youth, as this result was mitigated in young male gymnasts compared to their endurance-trained peers. The power development and motor control necessary to excel at gymnastics can still be improved, but this requires exposure to specific variables in training. 
Muscle morphological changes. Morphological adaptations to heavy resistance training include increased cross-sectional area, changes in muscle architecture, and changes in fiber type, among others. It was originally thought that the majority of adaptation in prepubescent children had to be neurological due to their lower concentrations of endogenous anabolic hormones, such as testosterone, compared to adults. Narsi et al. demonstrated an initial increase in strength and hypertrophy in a nearly linear manner over six months of training in adult males, but this has not been demonstrated in youth and adolescents. There is, however, a cross-sectional study from Kanisha et al. on the development of strength and muscle cross-sectional area through adolescence. While the cohort's training history was unaccounted for, and we assume that they would likely be classified as untrained, they did find an association with age on both muscle cross-sectional area and strength outcomes, with marked increases occurring between the 10 to 12-year-old cohort and 13 to 15-year-old cohort. This aligns with the optimum window from the long-term athletic development model. The children in the cohort showing some of the biggest improvements were also in middle school to early high school range, long before resistance training is typically introduced into most training paradigms. We must also consider the potential for even greater adaptations given a larger dose of training stimulus. In a different study, Kanisha et al. followed seven of the top junior Olympic weightlifters in Japan for 18 months. Athletes were aged 15.5 to 17.1 years and had a training history of 2.5 to 4.1 years at the time of testing. The cohort showed specific adaptations of their quadriceps femoris muscle group and isometric torque increases that outpaced increases in muscle cross-sectional area. We have discussed at length the specific nature of strength adaptations, and it is likely that the demands of the specific sports and the training modalities elicit specific adaptations in youth and adolescent musculature, with those changes occurring rapidly from ages 13 to 15 years old. Changes in muscle architecture are also seen with resistance training. For example, eccentric-oriented exercise in the adult male population has demonstrated an ability to increase muscle fascicle length. Fascicles are naturally longer in adults than in youth and adolescents and vary by individual muscle. When normalizing for bone and muscle length differences between adult and youth populations, the differences become insignificant. Still, we do have some low-level evidence that training stimulus can elicit changes in muscle architecture among youth. Finally, skeletal muscle loading increases muscle's potential for repair by inducing proliferation of muscle stem cells, known as satellite cells, under both acute and chronic conditions. Tendons. Whereas muscle is known to be a highly adaptive tissue, tendons typically take longer to adapt to loading. They contain a high concentration of extracellular matrix with relatively few fibroblasts interspersed within. These features are advantageous to transmitting the tensile force generated by skeletal muscles to joints, but come at the cost of remodeling and repair being much slower processes. The half-life of tendon collagen has been reported to be 10 times longer than that of skeletal muscle actin and myosin fibers. An often cited study by Heinmeier looked at the presence of carbon-14 radioisotopes in the Achilles tendons of individuals exposed to nuclear testing in the 1950s which aligns with the growth phase seen in bone development showing most tendon collagen accumulation occurs before the age of 17. We also have abundant research related to tendon adaptation in the adult population, with research supporting the parameters that optimize tendon adaptations. There is also evidence on how tendon development changes with age. Kubo et al. studied tendon compliance, a measure of stiffness, in the vastus lateralis muscles of young males, age 10.8 plus or minus 0.9 years. Also in slightly older youth males, age 14.8, plus or minus 0.3 years, and young adult males, age 24.7, plus or minus 1.6 years. They observed that tendon structures in younger males are more compliant, i.e. stretchier, than those in adults. The authors speculate that this additional compliance could have a protective effect against athletic injuries, but this could be contingent upon sufficient development of the musculotendinous complex. Much like bone, there may be a period of increased tendon development in youth. 
A two-year longitudinal study performed by Merciman et al. studied muscle and tendon development in young elite female volleyball players, age 16 plus or minus one year at entry into the study. During the span, quadriceps muscle cross-sectional area and strength increased by 6% and 13% respectively, while patellar tendon cross-sectional area increased by a whopping 27%. These adaptations could be unique to volleyball athletes, but still seem to demonstrate an incongruence between the rates at which muscle and tendon adapt. In a separate study, Merciman compared male and female volleyball athletes to age match controls. Irrespective of sex, muscle and tendon properties differed between athletes and controls. The volleyball athletes had increased muscle thickness and tendon stiffness, but had increased tendon strain as well. Castle et al. took this information one step further by studying youth athletes from different sports for Achilles and patellar tendon adaptations. A cohort of 500 youth athletes and 40 controls were broken into ball sports, combat sports, combined sports, cycling, and water sports, with each group demonstrating unique adaptations for the tendons. It must be mentioned that there was a large degree of heterogeneity in tendon thickness between each group, but overall, the loading patterns and demands for each sport seemed to elicit specific load-based adaptations to tendons, with the control cohort presenting with the smallest tendon thickness. Tendons respond to specific types of loading that are often dichotomized into low-load cyclic loading and high-magnitude loading, with each eliciting unique responses in tendon development and repair. Low-load cyclic loading would be analogous to what is seen in repetitive activities, ergo running, where tendon-related symptoms and diagnoses are common. From studies performed in adults, Ramtis in 2007 and 2010 showed that low-load cyclic loading was insufficient to elicit meaningful Achilles tendon adaptations. As we have seen elsewhere, different sports seem to elicit specific adaptations to both tendon stiffness and tendon cross-sectional area. Two meta-analyses by Bohm and Weisinger demonstrated that high-magnitude strain is necessary to elicit tendon adaptation in living tissue. High-magnitude strains are ideal for activating mechanotransduction pathways, ergo via fibroblast deformation, that stimulate the adaptive responses. One caveat is that plyometric exercise is typically included in the paradigm of high-magnitude strain, but the research from Four, Houghton, and Bohm would suggest that this is insufficient even when plyometric training is performed at relatively high intensities. The work of Bayer and Konsgaard examined the role of heavy-slow resistance training and eccentrics in the treatment of patients with symptomatic Achilles and patellar tendinopathy. Konsgaard identified specific changes in collagen fibromorphology associated with heavy-slow training. While this was a symptomatic population, it does lend support to the effects of heavy-slow resistance training on tendon adaptation. The current dogmatic approach to treating tendinopathy involves the use of eccentric loading. However, the above-mentioned review by Bohm suggests that the type of muscle contraction, i.e. eccentric versus concentric, is not as meaningful for tendon adaptation as is the magnitude of tendon strain. Specific to youth athletes, Merciman et al. analyzed the differences in muscle and tendon development as they relate to the development of tendinopathy. In order to maximize favorable tendon adaptations, they advocate for a high-magnitude tendon strain using five sets of four repetitions at 85-90% to 90% of the 1RM, with three seconds under tension for each repetition. This is the first prescriptive dosing to enter this article series, and may be better interpreted as 8 or 9 RPE, or even hard sets, since 5 sets of 4 repetitions at 85-90% to 90% of 1RM may be beyond what a well-trained individual could feasibly perform, particularly among specialized strength athletes. We will go much more into the relation of RPE, 1RM, and prescription later in the series. Adiposity The physiological adaptations to resistance training have also been proven advantageous in the reduction of adiposity, i.e. body fat, in both normal weight and overweight children. In only 8 weeks of training, McGuigan et al. were able to decrease absolute body fat by 2.6% while increasing lean body mass by 5.3% in overweight and obese children. This cohort was also able to increase their 1RM squat by 74% over this period. 
This increase in strength is likely more a testament to how undertrained these kids were, but it remains notable that just two months of resistance training was able to elicit such a dramatic improvement. McGuigan's group took this experiment further by studying the effect of duration on training as well. Unsurprisingly, the longer the duration of training, the larger the effect on total fat mass, with the group training for 24 weeks showing an 8.1% decrease in total fat mass. Schranz et al. conducted a meta-analysis on the effects and found very small to small effect sizes in favor of the implementation of resistance training on body composition, but the review also reported an influence of intervention type. Once again, proper dosing matters in order to elicit the desired effects, and operating under a homogenous construct of quote-unquote loading likely is not nuanced enough to maximize benefit. Benson et al. used a progressive high-intensity loading program of two sets of eight repetitions across 11 exercises over two months and showed that both overweight and normal weight children demonstrated improvements in central and whole body adiposity. In this piece, we have laid out a limited review of the beneficial effects of resistance training across various tissues in youth athletes, including the nervous system, muscle, tendon, bone, and adipose tissue. As with all resistance training programs, the parameters of load and dosing have been shown to play a large role for specific adaptation. Beyond that, it is increasingly demonstrated that the duration of training is a major factor, with longer programs demonstrating a larger effect. Meta-analyses by Beringer and Lysinki et al. both found that longer programs elicited larger overall effects, further emphasizing the need for resistance training to be maintained as a long-term part of athletic development programs. In the next article, we will discuss the roles of different training modalities in youth athletes. Thanks for tuning in to the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength conditioning. As always, I'm your host, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum. This was part three of the Resistance Training for Kids series written by Dr. Derek Miles. I've linked parts one, two, and three in the description below. You guys should go check them out if you want to see the pretty graphs and pictures that Derek included in his article. Also, if you're over on iTunes, leave us a five-star rating and a review. It really helps drive traffic to our channel, and we appreciate you guys tuning in. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.